You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. Hi, I'm Bronwyn Williams. We're back with Small Print. And today my guest is Eric Atmore. Eric, will you please introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced? Um, my name is Eric Atmore. Uh, my most remarkable achievement is having four children and three grandchildren. Uh, and the less important stuff is uh, professorship at Stellenbosch University and founding the Center for Early Childhood Development in Cape Town. Fantastic. So the reason why we invited you on the show is that through my other life, my work at the company called Flux Trends, we've become involved with trying to look at solving some of those issues in the early childhood development sector in South Africa, because being people that do tend to be forward-looking by the nature of our work, it becomes so critically important to understand that if you don't get early childhood development correct, you're setting society up for failure further down the line. But there's a catch there because there's always that trade-off between urgency and importance. And it's always seems to be that there's always something more urgent to deal with right now, particularly with those people in society that already have a voice. And unfortunately, very small children, literally in many cases, do not have a voice. And as such, their interests tend to be pushed further down the food chain when they should actually be prioritized, because if you lose whatever generation due to underdevelopment or poor nutrition, you basically lose them for life in terms of their ability to fully achieve their future potential. So that's why we invited you on the show, just for a little bit of background. We wanted to get some of your ideas and some of your thoughts on what's going on in the sector right now, because we believe there is a bit of an issue emerging with regards to how COVID crisis funds that had at least originally or nominally been allocated towards early childhood development seem to have not necessarily ended up in the hands and feeding the mouths that they were intended to do so. Can you maybe fill our listeners in on a bit of what's going on with that situation right now? Uh, Brian, with pleasure. It's, it's not a good news story. It's a horror story. The president, President Ramaphosa, a year ago, in October 2020, announced a 1.3 billion rand stimulus package for early childhood development. As a sector, we were over the moon. Never before in the history of the country had we had so much funding available. And that's where the good news ends. What has subsequently happened is that in order to access the 1.3 billion rand, the National Department of Social Development had to put together a plan for National Treasury to consider. They put together a plan, and the plan was not consultative. The early childhood sector was not part of it. And the outcome was that National Treasury reduced the 1.3 billion by 712 million. And the reason, and I've got this from the mouth of a top official at the National Treasury, was that the National Department of Social Development could not get together a coherent plan for early childhood development. Now that's appalling. So the 1.3 billion dwindled to 588 million. That was made up of a few million for social workers and 496 million 
was going to go to part of a stimulus package for to supplement the salaries of ECD workers, which is already very low. Of that 496 million, our information today is that only about one, 120 million has been paid out. That's not even 25%. So the reason for this is the totally unnecessary complex bureaucracy that was put in place. You know, the best way to, to describe it is if you look at it from the viewpoint of an early childhood teacher in Lusiki Siki. So Mrs. Kamalo is in Lusiki Siki. She has to apply. In order to apply, she needs electricity. She needs data. She needs an instrument. She needs to be able to navigate a complex application form. And she cannot do that. So automatically, the poorest of the poor are excluded. The result is that whilst government via the social development department wanted to reach around 110,000 ECD workers, they are not reaching anywhere near that. That's the, that's the crux of the matter. But to, ask, to exacerbate that, the Department of Social Development is not releasing any data on how many ECD workers they are reaching and how much has been paid out. The 120 million rand that I mentioned is our very accurate uh, estimate. And the end of the financial year is coming soon. That money is going to be lost because government does not necessarily allow funds to be rolled over. We've had one rollover already in March 2021. I doubt that they'll give the sector a second rollover. So it's sheer incompetence and lack of caring by the Department of Social Development. Let's take a step back just to fill people in on the situation in the ECD sector in South Africa. You're referring here really to private sector entities because we don't have much or really anything going on from a public sector perspective for early childhood developments. Am I correct in that assessment? Uh, you are correct with the exception of grade R. Grade R, although part of grade R is not considered part of early childhood development, in reality it is because it covers that birth to six age cohort. And government is setting up grade R classes in public primary schools and that's not going too badly. The, the, the uptake is at about 70%, uh, but that's 20 years after the policy was, was made. The early childhood sector is in a dismal state. The ECD workforce has been traumatized. Uh, there's no government provision of ECD centers for children pre-grade R. And it's picked up mostly by the community and private sector. So the way an early childhood center starts is that an entrepreneurial woman, and I say woman because in 99.9% .9 of cases, the center principal and teachers are women. She will see a need in her community and she will open her house or a church hall or a standalone structure to children. 
parents in the community, because they go out to work, they bring their children there. Pretty soon, that facility is too small. She will then seek bigger and bigger premises, but she will get that service up and running. And around the country, we, we've got about 32,000 ECD centers employing about 180,000 women and caring for about two, 2.3 million children every single day. And they've been significantly adversely affected by COVID, but also by an intransigent, uncaring National Department of Social Development. Thank you for filling us in there. So basically what we're talking about is securing the, the education and the health of the smallest members of society. And I think that's an interesting point to just dwell on for a second, sort of illustrate the, the significance of the situation because every human being at some point in their life falls into that category. We all start out as babies and then grow up. But while we are talking, uh, you're basically saying that there is no public sector support for children in that sector until they reach six years old. There's no sort of fees must fall campaign, campaigning to get sort of free education or free care to those young children. So while I don't want to take anything away from the fees must fall movement, I think it's interesting to contrast the way that media has given attention to the, to the needs of older students of the age sort of 18 plus, who really represent the most almost academically gifted segment of society, because already we know the statistics are that the people that start out going to school in grade R, are the amount that come out the other end with a bachelor's pass that are able to then go on to higher education is already a small minority in our country. And a large reason for that is because early childhood development programs have let them down. So again, we sort of stuck with this urgency importance conundrum in our society, where by allocating scarce resources to the already sort of academically privileged in our society, rather than focusing on the bottom end of that pyramid, where there's so many more people whose lives you could change significantly throughout the whole course of their life, it's just due to the fact that, of course, it makes a, it's a more compelling story when you've got you know, a cohort that's able to speak for themselves rather than a cohort of people who are completely unable to speak for themselves. I don't know if you actually have the data on that, because I think that is interesting to get into the number of children who actually end up going through the whole process with the privilege of having a bachelor's pass at the end of their basic education. What we do know is that of 100 children who start in grade one, only about 35 exit at grade 12. Now that data is pretty accurate because that's the data that the Department of Basic Education produces. And on the 10th day of school every year, there's a count of every single child. So government knows the throughput. But of those 30 that go on to, that, that, that get through grade 12, only a small portion end up at university. And there's also a huge dropout rate in the first year of university. I think one of the reasons is that those young people entering grade one and working through to grade 12, they haven't had the benefit of a quality early learning program. Let me tell you what the global research says about a child who attends a quality early learning program. 
Firstly, that child does better academically. A child who's been in a good quality program performs better academically. Secondly, that child is not likely to need expensive remedial education. Third, that child, as he or she grows up, is less likely to get involved in crime and substance abuse. When that child is an adult, he or she is more likely to get a productive job and earn a salary. And then an interesting one, I'm sure you'll find this interesting. A young girl who attends a quality early learning program is less likely to become pregnant as a teenager. Now, that research is now on its, on in the 55th year of its longitudinal study, and it is accepted worldwide. What the Americans have done through the High Scope Foundation, they've quantified the economic benefit and they found that for every dollar invested in a quality early childhood program, there's a saving to society of around $16. Now that's a 16 to one return, which any businessman would take. Then uh, in the early 2000s, a economist, at Harvard University by the name of James Heckman. He developed what is called the Heckman equation. And he showed that the earlier the investment in a child, the greater the long-term return. And in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, he mentioned this, and he's become the poster boy, although he's in his seventies, he's become the poster gentleman of early childhood development. So without a doubt, the benefits are there. Government knows of the benefits, but has not, has done very little in order to make those opportunities available to young children. Well, five-year-olds don't vote, right? I mean, you've got a lot of time to catch up with them and, and pander to the needs mm. of the generational cohorts that do vote further down the line. These are the perverse incentives of the way we've structured yeah. our societies and something that we have to work around. But listening to what you say there, that return on investment is absolutely incredible. And that's not just a return of investment that should be of interest to politicians, it's also a return of investment that should be of interest to the private sector. Because yeah. you're talking about a more valuable, more productive workforce yeah. and future customer base going forward. And this yep. echoes a lot about what Dr. Adrian Seville said. We had him on the show a couple of months ago and looking at his sort of six pack of criteria that's critical to getting society right. It was quite interesting to see that he actually found that healthcare was more important to economic growth than education in terms of if you yep. had to give them all a waiting. This is yep. incredible, but it really does speak to what you're saying. If you don't have good healthcare, and I think early childhood development can be seen as both a healthcare service and as yes. an educational service, you don't have the, the nutrition to be able to actually take in information and make the most of your education and the further investment that society makes in you going forward. So it's really interesting to think about this, that to say a lot of the investment we're making in our human capital as taxpayers and as the private sector and as NGOs, if we're only starting to invest in that capital at age six plus, or what is more commonly the case, only starting to invest in that capital at 18 plus, when we start yeah. to see them as being future employees, yeah. we're actually only shooting ourselves in the foot because it's going to cost us more and we're going to get 
less return and less value out of that for everyone. So you can look at this from a purely clinical capitalistic perspective or from a social compassion perspective. There's really no excuse left on the table not to prioritize the sector, which brings me back to the sort of point of this conversation, which is this money that you're talking about. What is the actual money in terms of how much is one of those women and those founders of those early childhood development centers actually looking to get out of this out of this program? And to sort of make this question a bit more complicated, because I think I can challenge you a little bit here, as, as to sort of what did they lose out when it came to COVID? What, what were they missing and what were they promised as compensation for the costs that we all had to bear with lockdowns and all the rest of the fallout from COVID there? Okay, let me let me let me tell you um, the amount of money that is um, available for uh, the salary subsidy is four. Th- it was four thousand seven hundred rand a month, and then it dropped to four thousand four hundred. But even that's not coming through. It's being paid in batches, and sometimes they would get half. Sometimes they would get a quarter. So that's the one element. It was 4,700, then it dropped to 4,400. If you look at the average wage of a woman who works in an early childhood development center, it's it ranges probably bottom of the range is about a thousand rand a month. And top of the range in a community-driven center is around three or four thousand rand a month. It just it just scrapes in under the national minimum wage. So that's below again, poverty wages at the low end of be, that scale. Eh? Yes. That's below poverty wages, yes. You ask what has happened since COVID. Well, for the first month at level five, all ECD centers had to close. At level four, ECD centers and schools remain closed. At level three, the government enabled primary schools and high schools to open. But the social development minister would not authorize that. She would not allow that. Together with one or two other organizations, we went to court and the high court ruled that the minister has to open ECD centers on the 7th of July. What had happened by that time is that the ECD centers had been decimated. The teachers had lost jobs. The centers had been closed and had no income for for three months and they could not survive. So our rapid research showed that about 50% of those 32,000 centers did not open again and still have not opened. And of those that did open, the attendance was anything from 10% to 50% of the maximum enrollment. So it's had a devastating impact on the income of early childhood development workers. Not to dismiss the impact on children. Children missed out on three or four months of learning program. They were left alone in dangerous communities. Uh, For many of those children, certainly the majority, they missed out on their nutritious meal, which they would get at the early childhood center. So it had a devastating impact on children in South Africa and from my reading, children around the world. 
Absolutely. So when we go back to the numbers there that you started out with, the, the numbers that the government was promising to pay into the sector were barely going to cover the, the losses that had been incurred. There's no sort of there's no sort of question of material gain for anyone really applying for these grants. So I think that's an important point to, to cover for the more sort of cynical among us who tend to look at sort of any handout from government as being perhaps tainted by whatever <laughs> that sort of process tends to be tainted with. But really, you're talking about a very small amount of money that could be going to any one particular individual. What is the maximum that one of these centers could have claimed for under the, the scheme that was put out? Well, initially, they could, they could claim for up to, up to four staff. So they would get 16,000, 17,000 rand. Um, for all three months. For forever. For the Not whole period. Month. Not per for, month, for the whole period. Not per month. For the whole period, and it's now 19 months. That was the plan. Then, because of the bureaucratic nature of the uh, application process, and because they weren't getting that many applications as they wanted because of the complexity, they did away with the four staff members at an early childhood center, and they upped it to the full complement. But the reality is that that money is not coming through and the blockage is the complexity. You know, if if, Bron, if Bronwyn is spelled B-R-O-N-W-I-N, she would be disqualified because the National uh, Register of Citizens wouldn't pick up that name. So computer says if, no. Computer says no. If there was a spelling mistake, if there was a digit error in the ID number, there were all these obstacles placed in the way. And, you know, if you're sophisticated and you've got all the Wi-Fi and you've got all the technology and you've got somebody who can help you through it, then you were successful. But the, the, the overwhelming women who are looking after our children haven't had those opportunities, don't have that, uh, infrastructure and data is very expensive. So you could be spending two hours applying and you don't have money for the data. I think it was a really badly thought out process. We could have done it much simply, much more simple if there had just been a bit of thinking about it. But part of the problem was that whilst the president announced the package in October, social development only got their act together in February the following year. And the end of the financial year is 31 March. And in a rush to get money out, they produce this convoluted system. And 31 March, they cannot pay anymore. And at that stage, they had paid less than 10 million out. And they, they did get some rollovers for 2021, 2022, but that comes to an, to an end now in March, on the 31st of March. Bronwyn, I think what you need to know is that whilst all this was happening, the social development minister, Lindiwe Zulu, went missing in action. She was silent uh, despite numerous petitions, we got together 15,000 signatures on a petition to her. 
no response. Letters to the minister, to the presidency, no response. It, it, it appeared as though everybody was avoiding the problem. And the problem was that tens of thousands of ECD workers, mainly women, were not getting a small supplement to what would have been their salaries. Let's just go through that again, because you're talking about a small supplement towards people's salaries, and it's a small amount of money, but it would have been a big difference in yep. these people's lives as it would have represented at least a month's worth of income. But yes. once we start unpacking these numbers again, and quite a lot of our listeners here tend to be from international countries, I know the numbers sound just so, so small when you try to translate them into dollar terms and all the rest. But you're really talking here not just about a significant investment in time and complexity trying to claim these funds. It's also a material cost. So yeah. you mentioned things like electricity and airtime. But I'm not sure how many people that don't live in South Africa that are watching this understand how expensive airtime and electricity are in comparison to a salary of between one and four thousand rand a month in order yeah. to complete the zoom call with you for example it would cost me the equivalence of maybe almost a thousand rands worth of airtime yeah. because obviously zoom uses a lot of data yeah. here so can you imagine yeah. just this one hour long call costing yeah. as much as someone would earn in a yeah. month i mean that's yeah. just a sort of comparison of how expensive data is i mean if the numbers do vary but i know if i want to do this i've had to use yeah. my phone sometimes when the electricity isn't working and that's how much yeah. it costs it's incredible so there's a cost there in terms of the data to use the system there's a cost in terms of paying at an internet cafe to use a computer because a lot of these government systems do not work on your phone i know yes. that there's been an a comp like a complementary crisis going on in the sort of trying to renew driver's licenses and car license discs yep. because the system just doesn't work. So you have to keep on trying again and again and you get kicked out because you run out of time or because there's a glitch or an error on the system. So it takes a lot of time and takes quite a lot of data, a significant yep. percentage of one's potential income you could be clawing back would be spent on that before you even get the money back, which becomes a sort of pay to gain kind of yep. deal, which is which is unfair to start with, right? I mean, if you're claiming 4,000 Rand, but it's going to cost you 400 Rand to get it, you're really yeah. only claiming, you know, 3,600, it goes down. The electricity costs too would obviously come yeah. into that. Again, many people that are on the lower end of the income scale have to go into pay-as-you-go electricity yeah. agreements. So there's a cash cost involved there. Yeah. And then there's also the other cost that I thought was really interesting in preparing for this interview. And that's the cost of having to open a bank account, yeah. a business bank account. Again, it takes electricity and data in order to do that in today's yeah. digital age. But maybe you could run through for our listeners the costs involved in opening a business account, because I heard that you had to have an account, or at least a, an account in your, in your name, in order to receive these funds. And we do live in Africa. There is still a large percentage of people who are technically unbanked with a formal institution, yeah. but you require a formal institution bank accounts in order to claim this. How much was that going to cost them? Not just in opening costs, but also in monthly maintenance costs while waiting for this payout. Uh, Bronwyn, you, you were not allowed to have a personal account. So Mrs. Kamalo could not have a personal account and have the money put into her account. It had to be a, an account for the Early Childhood Development Center, which is normally a business account. The days of banks giving uh, uh, charities 
and non-profits, uh, fee-free accounts. Those days are long gone, more than a decade ago. So Mrs. Kamala would have to go to the bank, open a bank account, which takes time. She would also have had to make an initial transport, deposit. Maybe. Transport, maybe. Transport, transport to get there, if possible. Transport getting there. Yeah. She would have to make an initial deposit to activate the account. You know, it's, it is nominal, it's 100 Rand or 200 Rand, but for somebody who's earning below the national minimum wage, it's a lot of money. And then there's the bank charges. So the minute that 4,400 came in, bank charges would be taken off and transaction charges. So we know of ECD workers who spent hundreds of rands only to be kicked out of the system because their name was spelled wrong, because the ID number, there was a digit left out or an incorrect digit punched in. So it's been a frustrating case. And yesterday I heard a tragic story that two early childhood development workers had killed themselves. They had committed suicide because of the trauma that they had been through during COVID. Now, I'm not saying it's because of the bank account, but they took their lives directly as a result of the trauma that they are experiencing or experienced. That's absolutely horrifying. So what you're really saying is that in some of these cases, in order to try and, and sort of take advantage of this carrot that had been laid out on the plate for them, some people might have actually ended up spending more money than they could even possibly get out at the end of it. Yes, that's exactly what happened. At the organization I run, the Center for Early Childhood Development, we had queues of people and we had competent young people with laptops and doing all the technology. And they were kicked out. They could not get or they would get to a particular point and they would then be told, you cannot proceed, proceed any further. Part of the problem is that the department used what is called the uh, central system database, CSD, something like that. And that kicked out applicants for the most flimsy of reasons, such as spelling your, your name incorrectly. If your name, the way you spelt it, didn't tie up with your ID book, it didn't allow you to proceed. It was an horrific uh, process. And I think it left, you know, the, the money's important, yes. But I think it left these entrepreneurial women totally disempowered and unvalued. And that has a huge impact on the individual's well-being. Absolutely. But maybe you can add some of your opinion, your insight here as to what actually happened. Was this purely a case of sort of classic government incompetence, which I think we've all experienced to various different degrees in most parts of the world, not just limited to South Africa? Or was there a sort of a, a layer of maleficence involved in well, in, as well, in that politicians in promising something that is actually impossible to achieve due to sort of laying technical hur hurdles 
could be a way to sort of delay making good on promises that were made in order to impress the populace and the electorate, because we do know, of course, we're heading into a local election cycle. Yeah. Yes, there are many incentives in play. Perhaps that's an unfair question to ask, but it's definitely one that I have here. Was this purely due to lack of planning, lack of poor planning, or just planning gone wrong altogether? Or was there a degree of, let's promise something, but we know we can't actually deliver it because we either don't have the money or we don't have the capacity or it's just going to be too difficult. But we'll we'll sort of pretend and then sort of just lay sort of hurdles so you never quite get past them and never actually get to the money. You'll sort of send you on a, on a goose chase, much like they do at airports, right? To stop people complaining yeah. about bags taking too long to get to carousels. They yeah. deliberately lay out the airport in such a way that you have to take a minimum of a 15-minute walk before you get to the carousel. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. it, it's it's almost it almost feels a bit like that. And I know that we do sometimes have that take place in the corporate sector. Yeah. Many corporates have been accused of that, you know, that whole yeah. digital redlining yeah. type of process. Yeah. Bronwyn, I think you've been very astute and, and very sharp. It's both. It's a bit of both. You know, if we if we look at the at the real problem, and that is a lack of political will to meet the needs of young children. Now, our constitution says that every child has the right to basic education. Every child has the right to social assistance and to protection. Then the Mandela administration, the first government administration in South Africa, signed the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child. We've got an early childhood development policy, which is really good. It's world-class. It was drawn up by the uh, nonprofit private sector. It is brilliant, but it's not being implemented. And the reason is, I think there's a significant lack of political will. You mentioned local government elections. We will soon be seeing politicians on television kissing babies, right? Babies will be kissed until October the 31st, and the next day they will be forgotten about. So there's lack of political will. The second is that we do not have a political champion. And by that I mean, if we take the case of Chile, Chile has a wonderful early childhood system. And that's because the president at the time happened to be a woman, Michelle Bachelet. She took early childhood development under her control. She led it and she led it from the front and the system there is very good. The, the third element is that our public officials in social development are shockingly incompetent. They, they're understaffed and they're inappropriately trained. They are not competent to deliver on a program such as the stimulus package. And then you spoke about, was this set up knowing that it would fail? I think that there's a significant amount of truth in that because the provinces weren't ready. The only province which really thought about this is the Western Cape. And what the Western Cape is, when the money was distributed, the Western Cape took that funding and they put it into a nonprofit organization for safekeeping. And that nonprofit organization is doing the distribution and the, the disbursement rate amongst the nine provinces is highest 
as a percentage in the Western Cape. So it's a combination of all those factors, but we really need to get President Ramaphosa on a public platform speaking about early childhood development, about nutrition. You brought up healthcare, which is a critical part of early childhood development. And telling the nation that we value our children, the, the, the late Oliver Tambo, president of the ANC, and after whom the airport in Johannesburg is named, he said something profound. He said that a nation or a country that does not value its children does not deserve its future. And there's so much truth in that. And the question I often ask politicians is, do you value our future? Because if you do, you will work and you will maximize the opportunities for young children. Absolutely, that makes so much sense looking forward because we have to put some effort into yeah. what's coming next. That is literally yeah. our future is in the hands yeah. of the, the yeah. tiniest people among us there, right? I mean, like that, that is literally your future. Yeah. You're not investing yeah. in the smallest people in the room. You're not yeah. actually planning ahead. You don't, you don't have a long-term yeah. plan at all. But yeah. I think that's also kind of the subtext of the conversation that we've been having. We spent a lot of time talking about the disbursements of COVID relief funds, which is going to go to teachers, which, as you said, is, is good. And they need the money and they're doing great work because it's not work that's being done by the state at all. Yeah. They're not even yeah. part of the budget. But it's still actually a step removed from the core issue, which is that we're failing the children themselves. Yeah. Yes, we're failing their teachers and their caregivers and their minders, but we're also yeah. failing the children themselves. Was there any money put aside in our COVID relief budget that was going to go directly to actually helping children? No, not, not one cent. But I, I, I do want to tell you something which is going to shock you. Our government to keep a prisoner in a prison, our government subsidizes that cost to the tune of 400 Rand per prisoner per day for 365 days. So if you take the prison's budget, um, it works out at just, just under 400 Rand per prisoner per day for 365 days. Now, that's not my numbers. That's the justice minister's numbers. Let's look at the early childhood. That's a middle class income. To put it in perspective yes. against people who don't understand South Africa's demographics, that would be around about a median income in South yes. Africa. Yes, but what's coming now is going to shock you. The equivalent early childhood development subsidy is 17 rand per child per day for 264 days. Now, I've got no clue how they get to 264. It's a school term, right? <laughs> uh, mathematically, that, it, it doesn't work out. But it's, it's 17 rand per day, for uh, per child per day, for 264 days. But there's a means test. And if the parental income is more than 7,600 rand a month, which That's is less than what the prisonable works out to exactly, for those that aren't exactly. following the maths. About half exactly, of that. Exactly. If the family income, joint family income, is more than 7,600 rand a month, 
That Sorry. child, that child disqualifies himself because they are too wealthy. If it's a single parent, it drops to 3,800 per month. So if you do the mathematics, the differential is horrific. It's something like 40 Rand to one Rand because the prisoner gets subsidized every single day, 365 days. The ECD center gets 17 Rand per day, per child for 264 days. But that's not a compulsory subsidy or an automatic subsidy. Only about one in five early childhood centers gets that subsidy. Because if you're living in, in Santon or Houghton or Claremont in Cape Town, you're not going to get that subsidy. So it is it is horrific. The you know, people say to me, what do you mean by political will? Political will is very simple. Look not at what the politicians say. Look at where they put their money. Look at where they invest. And you'll see SAA got bailed out recently for 10.5 billion rand to fly business people around the country. ESCOM, Denel, they've all been bailed out with billions of rands. SABC, Early, my favorite, the most necessary SAB, of all. <laughs> SABC, children get nothing. Yet, yet we've signed the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. Our constitution says that children are important and we've got a brilliant early childhood development policy. We are never going to implement it. And it's now coming up to six years old. But talk to me about that policy that we have, that you say has the right ideas, even if they're not being put into play. What are the core tenets of that policy? What, is, what does it suggest or what does it require, actually, okay. quite frankly? <laughs> Historically, early childhood opportunities have been where the child goes to an early childhood center in a building, right? What, what is commonly known as creches, daycare centers, nursery schools, kindergarten. So the, the old system, which we inherited from our colonial masters, an early childhood development center would be a building that children would go to. That's changed radically over the years, as more and more research comes out on the importance of those first thousand days. And as more, as more and more research comes out about the role of parents, particularly the mother, the role of nutrition and healthcare, the, the idea of early childhood development is no longer a physical building. It's now a process and it's the process by which children grow and thrive and develop. So the new policy includes a whole continuum of services. During pregnancy, you know, mothers being in the healthcare system, getting good advice, regular visits to a clinic, baby being born in a safe environment, baby being registered, getting a name, because there's still tens of thousands of children who don't have registration certificates, birth certificates. And then it goes all the way through to when children enter grade one. At, a, at another angle is nutrition, healthcare, moral development, 
psychosocial development. So early childhood development has become a far more inclusive, all-embracing process. And if we can get those children off to a good start, meaning their mother does not live in a toxic environment, the children are born with sufficient health care and compassion. Uh, it's getting a bit soft now, but love and care, you know, concern for a child. Um, and then the educational component, which starts at home. It doesn't happen in the school only. That early, early reading, early numeracy, storytelling, the child sitting on the father's lap, arm around. Those are all part of the new integrated thinking around young children. And if children can get that, they will enter grade R confident and competent. And throughout the pipeline to grade 12, there'll be less grade repetition. Children will not get involved in crime and drugs. And those are all huge social costs. So the additional cost that you put in pre-grade R is saved almost immediately down the education pipeline. So from an economic point of view, there are huge cost savings, which, as I said, the Americans worked out at about 16 to 1. So, you know, the, the jargon says it's a no-brainer, but politicians are not seeing that. And at the end of the day, it's politicians who make the decisions. That's well put, but maybe I can push you a little bit on that to say that what you've outlined there is a complex solution. It's not a simple one size fits all thing. It's not something that will even necessarily be solved by giving more money to ECD centers. Yeah. Obviously, we live in a real world where there are real scarcities, whatever the Americans yeah. and their trillion dollar coins will tell yeah. you about the, the infinite supply of money. The fact is yeah. that real re resources in terms of stuff yeah. and food and hands to hold and to love are in scarce supply. When we have scarce resources to allocate across society, where should we be allocating resources as taxpayers or as corporates that might be listening to this and wanting to invest in actually you know, fulfilling the future potential of our society? Where should that money go? Should it go to something like a universal basic income and just make sure everyone gets above the poverty line? Should it go to higher grants towards young mothers? Should it go more towards our healthcare sector? Should we be investing in hospitals first to make sure all those women get there, as you said, their sort of prenatal care done right? Or should it be going to early childhood development centers? Or should it be set up into a trust fund for children that they can access throughout their lives? There's multiple solutions. Obviously, we have to pick and choose priorities. And I think that one of the reasons why this sector has not perhaps got the attention from media or from society at large is because the solutions are complicated and messy. Going back to fees must fall. That's a very simple demand. It fits, fits yeah. beautifully on a hashtag. It's easy to share around. It's clear. We want cheaper university fees. And in fact, we want them to fall all the way to zero so we can have yeah. free higher education. That is a simple demand. And of course, an 18-year-old has lots of demands, but that cohort sort of picked a particular topic and ran with it. And were very successful in drawing attention and funds and budgets towards their cause. So I think the challenge is to say more money for early childhood development means 
where, what, as you've said, a person is quite a 360 degree being. So if you had the opportunity to direct funds towards a particular cause, what would be the cause within this cause that you would pick for the fastest and the greatest or the deepest return on that investment? Bronwyn, that's the, what do they call it? The $64,000 question. Look, $64,000. Yeah, I'm, I'm a dreamer and I'm also an uh, opportunistic. I would say we can invest in all of those to a degree. Uh, let me tell you why. <clears throat> it's now coming out at the Zondo Commission that we wasted not billions, hundreds of billions through corruption. That's the first thing. I think also that there will be a time where we will have to bite the bullet, as they say, redirect some of that money to the early years and live off the cost savings down the line. You know, fees must fall is interesting. I was at the heart of that as a, as a professor at the university. Fees must fall got the prominence because young men and women can toy toy. They it was a great march. story. It was they a beautiful march. story. Yes, yes. They can march as they did from Johannesburg to Pretoria and toy toy on the lawn in front of the union buildings. They can destroy University libraries were burnt down. Art collections at UCT were burnt. Young children can't do that. Young children, in a sense, are voiceless. And the adults who look after those children would never, ever, ever leave a child to go and toy toy. It's not in their, in their makeup. They will stick with those children. When parents turn up late to collect their children, that caregiver is there. I'm not aware ever of a caregiver abandoning a child. So I think we can do it. You know, we need to redirect our, our spending. There's tons of wastage. As you would have seen, 15 million rand in the Eastern Cape to paint a few lines on the grass and call it a sports stadium. You know, it's the South Africa is not a poor country by by United Nations standards, we are a middle-income country. We, we have to redirect that spending appropriately. We can't have the Industrial Development Corporation loaning billions of rands to businesses, knowing that they're never going to get a return on that. And we've seen it. We've seen it. The uh, Public Investment Corporation Four billion rand into a newspaper group, and that four billion rand is gone. So I don't buy the argument that there's no money. There is money. We need the political will to shift it around to where it gets the greatest return. And the greatest return is told to us by an economics Nobel laureate, is the early years. Well, what else can you say to that, right? I think we're almost at the end of our hour now. So I do want to give you the closing moment to say anything that you feel like you didn't get a chance to say or to clarify or tie off any threads that we covered through today. And then if you can tell people where they can get hold of you if they want to continue this conversation or get involved with changing things, literally from the bottom up. 
would like everybody, every South African adult, to become an early childhood development activist. And you can do that in, in, in many ways. I think the media, yourself included, plays a huge role. And thank you for this hour. It, it really is appreciated. You can get hold of the Center for Early Childhood Development. Uh, we've got a website, www.cecd.org.za. We do teacher training. We provide early childhood buildings. We provide educational equipment. We do governance training and financial management training. We work with parents, helping parents to uh, support their children in the learning process. I think as an optimist, we will get there. We will get there. Uh, our democracy is 27 years old, which is a speck on the spectrum. And, and we will get there. But we need the political leadership. And we need people like yourself to spread the gospel, to use um, a religious term. Thank you so much, Eric. Those are very inspiring words. And thanks once again for joining us on Small Prince. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.